Today on Cross Defense, we're talking about Gog and Magog. Israel's at war with Hamas. Is this part of the end times prophecies? Well, only if Russia invades Israel, right? Millennialists would have you believe that Gog and Magog point us to the Ruskies. But does it hold any water? Well, no, none. Let's get into it right now here on Cross Defense. Commenting on one of my YouTube shorts pulled from a sermon video wherein I proclaim that you are not saved by the law, but by the gospel. Hazy Days says, shut up, bruh. No one cares about you. Just jump already. Stop wasting oxygen. Stay tuned till the end of the show for my response. The Hazy Days delightful words. Welcome to Cross Defense, friends. This is the show that aims to equip the mind excite the imagination, and comfort the soul, and aims to do all of that with God's Word. I'm your host, Reverend Tyrell Bramwell. I'm the pastor of St. Mark Lutheran Church out here in Ferndale, California, where, get this, my friends, get this, we don't believe the end times clock started ticking on May 14, 1948, when the nation-state of Israel came into being. No, no, we actually believe that the end times clock started ticking uh, about 1948 years before that. If during the show you want to send us your questions, your comments, or your bits of biblical brilliance, we'll go to stmarksferndale.com slash contact. That's S-T-M-A-R-K-S, ferndale.com slash contact. You can also leave us a review and a five-star rating of the show on the podcast platform, of your choice, or on all of them if you're really feeling frisky. Unbelievers are not friendly to the truth, so we need your help to push the message of Christ out to other listeners, other users of these platforms, despite algorithmic restrictions, despite the overwatch of a secular world that does not want people to hear about Jesus. So, we appreciate your help. Thanks. Speaking of clockwork, like clockwork, the Israel-Hamas war has excited the premillennial dispensationalists to focus their energy on reading, well, the geopolitical tea leaves, if you will, repeating, as they do, that ancient error of thinking about everything in the Bible in strictly earthly terms, and so biting off their nose despite their face, by which I mean rejecting, practically speaking, that Christ's church, which they belong to, is the biblical Israel, preferring instead to put at first fiddle the modern nation-state called Israel. Why? Because ultimately, they don't read all of the Bible Christologically they don't maintain the historic, orthodox, eschatological view, and so they fall into the same errors as their predecessors did, prophesying about this or that event, saying that it was foretold in Scripture, or at least wondering if it was. (laughs) Consider all of these titles just as a sample selection for your Uh, the excitement of your imagination, all right? These are YouTube videos, and all of them have hundreds of thousands of subscribers on these channels. First one, Hamas and the End Times. Is Jesus about to return? By Mark Driscoll. Hmm. How about this one? End Times Prophecy Being Fulfilled in Israel Right Now? Rebuilding Temple Mount? by Ruslan K.D. Or, Israel declares war, what this means for end-time prophecy, by Isaiah Saldivar, I think is how you say his name. I don't know this guy. What the terror attacks on Israel mean for end-times prophecy, by Greg Glory. I'm sure you know of many, many more videos and content just like this. 
All of these channels, as I said, have hundreds of thousands of subscribers watching this kind of content. So it's a safe assumption that you might have watched one of these videos or or one like them or heard your friends and family members who've watched them talking about an interesting part of the end times intrigue. And that is Gog and Magog. If for no other reason, they're interesting because the words are weird. So are you hearing this? How about Russia? It Russia's going to eventually attack Israel. Do you know that? Do you know that? Really? Because Moscow is going to align itself with Iran, which is the ancient Persia, right? Modern-day Persia, Iran is. And this has all been foretold in the Bible because it's going to bring about World War III and the end of days, and then Jesus will come back. <laughs> is this what you're hearing or something like this? Yeah, that's speculative gibberish that is quite quickly put to bed. That, that pail doesn't hold any water, actually. There's a giant hole in that boat. So let's actually put that little bit of fiction to bed today. Let's actually plug that hole in the boat, shall we? To do that, we're going to return to our good old Reverend Theodore Grabner's book, War in Light of Prophecy. We read that book not too long ago, or from that book not too long ago, as we were looking at amillennialism, right? This is our, our faithful Lutheran pastor who refuted all the wayward millennialists back during World War I and World War II when those guys, they didn't have YouTube videos to put out there, but they had all kinds of, of writings that were circulating, pamphlets and books, and they were spreading all the lies from the Schofield Bible, and, and they were just getting traction to spread this dispensational premillennialism and all this kind of garbage. And they saw the wars, one and two, World War One and two, as the fulfillment of end times prophecy. In the exact same way, the popular celebrity pastors of our day see the war between Israel and Hamas. Now, Truth be told, as you know, as is true, war is, in general, part of end times prophecy. When we see wars and rumors of wars, these things are to make us think about the Lord's return. But we're specifically talking about this particular war, as they have always done throughout the past. They pick a certain war that triggers their, their mind, their imagination, not being rightly ruled by Scripture. And they start going down these, these fantasy aisles to see how far they can get in, in all of their speculation. Now, not too long ago, as I mentioned, we talked about different end times views, eschatological views, premillennialism, postmillennialism. We spent some time in Revelation 20. We learned from Rever Reverend Grabner back then at that video that a literal interpretation of the thousand years, a millennium, isn't biblical and has some major inconsistencies. And we established that this is why we hold to an amillennial view. We did all that in about an hour. Was it as thorough as it could have been? Surely not. We can talk about it some more. But we got the basics out of the way. And we looked at 10 points that would help us stop and think about why millennialism in general, chiliasm, of all different stripes, is erroneous and doesn't come from Scripture. So let's actually go to Revelation 20 again and start there for today. Starting at verse 7, we're going to read through 10. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, 
where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Friends, you can take all of those voices stirring you up to think that this war involving the modern nation-state of Israel and Hamas was foretold in Scripture. You can take all those voices that say that, that say that this is part of end times prophecy, specifically citing where this and that event are going to happen, and you can hit that one giant mute button on all of them. Just put them all on mute. The millennialists are getting all excited about this war because it allows them to rework their their literalist date-setting schemes. They love doing this. They're all looking at May 14th, 1948 again, when the nation-state of Israel came into being, and, and they all got their, their eschatological calculators out. And, and like little kids in 1992, they're having a whole bunch of fun playing number munchers in the computer lab in school. But it's, but it's nothing more than dispensational futility. That's it. Jewish kiliasm. Well, I suppose there's a little more to it than that, which is why so many people are ready to believe it. They want to believe it, actually, because it presents an extraordinary sort of excitement that we struggle to get from the ordinary reading of Scripture. And that, that we got to be honest about that. It is pretty exciting. The whole Left Behind series, the movies, the, the thought of the rapture and the thought of all these different, the dispensations and the timelines and all the stuff that we're going to live through and all the whatever. Yeah, it's exciting. Man's mythologies are often, usually, quite regularly more exciting than God's word because we're creating stories that appeal to our natural senses, our, our physical eyes, our, our desires and our fallen heart, rather than listening to the story that is made for the spiritual eyes, that is primed and ready for the spiritual ears. It's akin to G.K. Chesterton saying, the most extraordinary thing in the world is an ordinary man and an ordinary woman and their ordinary children. It takes wisdom to see this truth, doesn't it? The world says that to live an extraordinary life, you have to travel to exotic places, you have to be adventuresome, rock climbing and snowboarding, and skydiving your way here and there, extreme, fast, reckless, etc., etc., etc. No, that's not. That's not the extraordinary life. The ordinary man and the ordinary woman with ordinary children the ordinary family, that's the extraordinary life. And the same thing goes for how to read the Bible. All the, the dispensationalists with their cool contemporary worship services and slick productions on stages with digital graphics, etc., etc., with, with their adolescent immaturity and how to read the scriptures, they're focused on the exciting fantasy. It gave us things like left behind, right? To them, the ordinary reading of the Bible is humdrum. It's not extraordinary enough. We got to jazz it up, but we know better. The shine wears off and the intrigue dies down. And when it's all said and done, how Lindsay and the Jehovah Witnesses and the climate crisis crazies, well, they have to set new dates, they have to try to paint over the old ones for the end of the world so that no one remembers what they said. And meanwhile, we're here, just ordinary Christians, with our ordinary Christocentric amillennial read of the Bible, understanding Scripture as Scripture wants to be understood instead of how we want Scripture to be understood. Millennialism is alluring to fallen people, we sinners who have a much easier time seeing with our physical eyes, what, what you might call our literal eyes, than with our spiritual ones. And we're, we're a dense people, <laughs> through and through. Even, even the educated types among us, those like Nicodemus, we have a hard time 
grasping spiritual truths. How does a grown man climb back into his mother's womb? Yeah? And Nicodemus was a teacher. Most of us aren't like that. Most of us are much simpler than Nicodemus. We're fixated on signs. What do you mean you'll rebuild the temple in three days? It took 46 years to build the temple, right? John 2. We have a hard time seeing Scripture the way that the Lord would have us see Scripture with our spiritual eyes. Let's take our first break. We'll come back and we'll get into Gog and Magog at depth. Thanks for tuning in to Cross Defense. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Put this wisdom of God into practice by listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple, and faithful pastors from around the world help sharpen my faith in Christ every episode. I know you'll be blessed by listening and studying God's Word with us. Listen to Sharper Iron weekdays at 8 a.m. on KFUO and on demand at KFUO.org, the KFUO radio app, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Greg Laurie here with some thoughts about what's happening in Israel. Listen, one of the signs of the end times is God said the Jewish people would be scattered and regathered in their land. That's happened. On May 14th, 1948, Israel became a nation. and The prophetic time clock began to tick. But then God also said in the last days that Israel would be attacked by a large force from her north identified as Magog. Now, is Magog Russia? Many scholars and prophecy experts believe it is. I happen to think it very well could be. Okay, so Gog and Magog. Ezekiel 38, 1-6 says, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out. And all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them, with buckler and shield, wielding swords, Persia, Cush, and Put, are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his hordes, Beth Tagarma, from the uttermost parts of the north, with all his hordes, many peoples are with you. Reverend Grabner writes, As for Gog and Magog, the identification again proposed with such assurance by the millennialists as the names of a great political combination, an alliance, we would say today, a political alliance, overwhelming the Jews in Palestine, involves us in a maze of contradictions <laughs> and absurdities. Man, oh man, you know I love me some dead Lutheran theologians. They called spades spades. They didn't beat around bushes, whether they were evangelical or papistic. They didn't beat around bushes. I love me some dead Lutheran theologians. They were direct and they were loving, speaking the truth. Our millennialist friends are so fixed on connecting the Israel-Hamas war to end times prophecy because they take the eschatological prophecies about Israel to literally be about the nation-state of Israel that was formed after World War II. Whereas the rest of us understand that Israel is the Christian church. At least that's how the Bible describes Israel. Israel is God's chosen people, and those chosen people are those who believed in the coming of the Messiah before he came and still believe in him now that he has come. What is his name? Jesus, the Christ. Christianity, my friends, we are the new Israel. Not ethnically. Well, some of us perhaps are still Jewish by ethnicity, right? But not ethnically. No, not with physical eyes. Spiritually speaking, Galatians 3, 7, 
drives this nail home. It makes the point succinctly. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Who are the sons of Abraham? Are they his bloodline? No. Is that what the Bible's talking about? No. Who are the sons of Abraham? Those of faith. Faith in whom? Abraham's offspring. Who's that? Oh, Paul tells us, Jesus. And so, Reverend Grabner rightly says regarding the reading of end times prophecies, it's impossible to take Israel literally as meaning Jews because in that case, Ezekiel would teach not one but two restorations of Israel for not only chapter 37, verse 22 and following, before the campaign of Gog, but also chapter 39, verse 28, after that onslaught, Israel is represented as living peacefully in Palestine. And another reason, he gives us four of them. The second one is that in that case, Gog, Magog, Meshech, and Tubal, and the rest would have to be taken in a literal sense, which is impossible because none of these nations exist today. (laughs) They don't exist. Nowhere is it indicated that the descendants of these tribes are referred to by the prophet. It's kind of important to pay attention to the text, yeah? This is an important note that Grabner gives us. The millennialists say that we have to read the prophecies literally about the end times. Literally, right? Literally. They make a a mess of revelation with a literal instead of a spiritual interpretation. But a literal reading of the end times prophecies can't be maintained with any measure of consistency. It can't be done. See, they start by, by reading it literally. You heard how Pastor Greg Lowry did it, right? May 14, 1948. The Jewish people are drawn together at the establishment of this Jewish nation. What did he say? The end times clock started ticking. Yeah, that's what he said. They take a literal date connected to the literal modern nation state of Israel, but never mind consistency, as then they they shift to a figurative Gog and Magog. Literal Israel, figurative Gog and Magog. See the issue here, guys? See the lack of consistency? Why is Israel literal? But Gog and Magog are not. St. Augustine writes in his wonderful work, The City of God, the peoples that John calls Gog and Magog are not to be thought of as some definite barbarians dwelling in a certain part of the earth. John clearly indicates that they are to be everywhere in the world. Nations that are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, Revelation 28 says, right? They're everywhere. <laughs> Numbering the, the sands of the seas, right? They're, I mean, we get this idea from Revelation that there's too many to count from all over the ends of the earth. And if they're all going to converge into that modern nation state of Israel? Oh, but but no, pastor, you say. You don't understand. We we, we know that the literal nations, we're not saying it's figurative. We're saying the literal nations of Gog and Magog are, are Russia and Iran, this sort of thing, right? I know, I know. I get the argument. I understand. Greg Glory and, and his friends, they present what seems like a somewhat convincing analysis of Ezekiel 38 too. I get it. Son of man, set your face toward Gog the land of Magog, the chief prince of of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him. The word chief there in the Hebrew is Rosh. In some translations, they will render it as a proper name, the prince named Rosh. And then they say that Rosh is is the uh, paternal, the the patriarch of of the kingdom of Russia, the czar, the prince of Russia. Yeah, I get it. I totally get it. Meshech, they say, is, is Moscow today. And Tubal is Siberia's Tubolsk. I think I said that right. I get it. So let's actually take a minute and look at that. Let's see if there's any, again, if this holds any water. Rosh here 
Rosh. This word is translated 76 times as chief in the Old Testament. Not as a proper name, as chief. It doesn't occur a single time as the name of a, of a people group, of a nation, in the Bible, ever. And all efforts to find a nation resembling Rosh in ancient literature outside of the Bible, well, that's come up empty too. There's not anything in Scripture or outside of Scripture, ancient literature, that shows Rosh as a people group. It's always translated as chief. There's no convincing reason, none has ever been proposed, as to why we should render Rosh as anything but chief, except for a desire drawn from the Schofield Bible to read millennialism into the text. But we have two words that just seem like they should be connected, right? Rosh and Rusha. <laughs> Don't you hear it, Pastor? Can't you use your ears? Oh, sure. Yeah, I hear it. But there's a lot more to facts <laughs> than phonetic similarities. Reverend Grabner is gracious enough, however, for the sake of argument, to grant the connection that Rosh and Russia might actually be connected. He says, therefore, the next question then is, can these Rosh, this people of Rosh of Ezekiel's day, be identified with the Russians? And Grabner's writing at this point about the World War I, the Russians of 1917. Can we connect Ezekiel's people of Rosh with the 1917 people of Russia? Or we might say to this, to, for today's episode here, for our, our purposes, Putin's Russia in our day. To derive Russia from Rosh is, the long and short of it, an etymological impossibility. It's not there. Not until the ninth century, even historically, that's linguistically, but even just uh, anthropologically or sociologically, however you want to go into that, not until the ninth century does the word Rus appear as a name for the inhabitants of what now is, is part of Russia. And this, this name, it's not of Oriental Asian origin. It's Scandinavian. The Rus, they were Normans who invaded Russia in the ninth century. They invaded that part of the world in the ninth century. They came from Sweden, and their name was Rothsman, Rudermainer, rowers, seafarers. And it was mispronounced by the earlier inhabitants, the Finnish settlers of what we now call Russia, it was mispronounced as Ruotsi, and then it was, it was soon abbreviated into Rus. And to this day, my friends, the Finns call Sweden Ruotsame. So yeah, millennialists out there, sorry guys. History says no to the connection between Russia and Ezekiel's Rosh, chief. Or, as Reverend Grabner puts it, the identification of Prince of Rosh with Tsar of Russia becomes a manifest absurdity. <laughs> I love dead Lutherans. Ah, oh, they're so good. If only us living ones would be just as good. <laughs> now, we got some good living ones, too. So how about Meshek and Tubal as Moscow and Tobolsk? Moscow didn't exist, dear saints, until 1156 A.D. 1156 A.D. The mid-12th century. That was pretty far away from Ezekiel's day, eh? Again, just because Meshek starts with an M 
and is a foreign-sounding word for a foreign people doesn't mean it automatically equates to another foreign M-word location. That's a very disconnected and trivial reading of the text. As for Tobolsk in Siberia, it wasn't until about 2,000 years after Ezekiel's day, around the year 1577, that a Russian ever set foot in Siberia. So Tubal, as part of Magog, having to do with already being part of the Russian Empire? No, it's not there. Russia didn't conquer Tobolsk until 1639, guys. 1639. That's after the Reformation. Doesn't hold water. Okay, so let's plug this dispensationalist hole in the boat of responsible Bible study and discuss for a moment what peoples are more likely to be the accurate historic references known to Ezekiel's Jews. Meshech was indeed a barbaric nation residing in the farthest north of Asia Minor south of the Black Sea. They're probably the Mashki, referred to by Herodotus, and the Musku of Assyrian inscriptions. Yeah. The Jews? (laughs) Fathom this, right? The ancient Jews and the ancient Greeks and the ancient Assyrians, all of them from that same era of antiquity, record a people of the same description. Meshik in Hebrew, Mashki in Greek, and Musku to the Assyrians. So, pretty cool deal we got going on here, because not only does the, does the ancient records actually match up and give us some solid information, but all three names do indeed start with an M and are foreign-sounding, for a foreign people, so our millennialist scholarship is satisfied too. Two birds, one stone. Who'd have thunk it? Okay, let's take a break. We'll come back and continue our conversation about Gog and Magog in End Times Prophecy. Thanks for tuning in to Cross Defense. Greetings, friends. I'm Pastor Phil Boo, host of Die Strong Word. Join us for an exciting journey through the book of Joshua. Discover the triumphs, challenges, and God's gift of faith that guided the Israelites to the promised land. Tune in and be inspired by this incredible biblical adventure, which still has something to teach us today. Only on Thy Strong Word, weekdays at 11 a.m. on KFUO. Welcome back to Cross Defense, my friends. As we come back to our conversation on Gog and Magog, we're looking at Tubal next. And instead of forcing Tubal into Tobolsk in Siberia, we see that it's actually the neighboring tribe of the Tiberini, called the Tabalu in Assyrian records. They dwelt to the west of the Moshki. The description of their armament, as you might expect, as well as the description of their fierce character in Ezekiel, it coincides perfectly with the same tribes that Herodotus describes writing a hundred years after Ezekiel. Only a hundred, not 1639, not 1577, not 1156. No, in that same century of antiquity. Yeah. So, Reverend Grabner, he gives us two more reasons, dear friends, why it's impossible to take Israel literally as meaning Jews. Because three, he says, if the nations in Ezekiel, chapter 38, are to be understood literally, then why not their weapons? Why not their shields and their bucklers, their bows and their arrows? Why do we have to take Israel literally, but nothing else in this text? See, do any of the dispensational premillennialists out there, 
as they're watching the footage of Hamas launching rockets into Israel and, and seeing Israel's response with missiles and tanks and guns and drones, etc., 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 do any of them truly maintain that we're to read Ezekiel's prophecy literally? Gog and Magog are going to counter Israel with bows? <laughs> with arrows? Really? Seriously? No. It's impossible to maintain that Scripture is speaking of a literal Jewish nation-state of Israel. Also, for this fourth reason that Reverend Gravener gives us, the notion, he says, that the Jews dwelling in Palestine will, will be attacked by actual military forces, as the millennialists believe, made up of Russia and Germany and Persia, Armenia, and a, and a great part of Africa, and that this great drive will be aimed against a helpless people, a country without defenses, that's so ridiculous that no thinking person should entertain the thought even for a minute. And this is a great, fantastic point, my friends, and one that you're probably even struggling right now to understand because we neither know our scriptures nor the power therein. Don't take that personal. I'm right there with you. See, this is a great point. For this, this current round of of kiliastic false prophecy, this, this current round of, of date-setting and, and anticipation of the Israel-Hamas war and end-times prophecy, it, it really misses something key when we look at Ezekiel 38, verses 10 and 11. Let's see what that says. This is what Ezekiel is saying to Gog. Thus says the Lord God, on that day, thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates. Now, dear friends, we did indeed see the, the unleashing of an evil scheme. We can go that far. But was that evil scheme, was it against unwalled villages? Or did Hamas have to breach Israel's famous wall? Very famous wall, right? The modern nation-state of Israel is extremely fortified. It's certainly not a land of unwalled villages where people dwell securely. It's never been that, not since its inception as a modern nation-state in 1948. Never has it been a secure place to dwell. It's always been a powder keg because Jews ethnically and Arabs ethnically, Muslim by religion and Jewish by religion, are living side by side. They're, in fact, the only Jews in the entire region of the world. And so there's a lot of hostility. And, and there's a lot of religious overtones there, to be sure. So we can understand, we can be gracious toward the confusion here. But let's, if we're going to focus in on how a war with Israel could lead to this, this uh, invasion of Gog, we've got we to walk ourselves through the scenario. Well, are we counting the beginning here with Hamas attacking Israel? Are we, are we counting that as the beginning of this? When the evil scheme develops in their mind and they move in before Russia's brought in as an ally to the Hamas, to, to, to Iran and Lebanon and all that? Is that where the war begins? Because if it is, there was a wall and they had to breach it. And, and nobody in Israel was dwelling securely. They, they have the Iron Dome for crying out loud. There's been hostility there since 1948. So what are we going to do? We're going to have to fast forward, then calm down, everybody. Turn the heater down and let there be a season of peace. Let there be such a long season of peace where the walls are coming down and, and no one's where. Is this what we're going to do? 
See how it all falls apart? It all just falls apart. And for good reason, which we'll get to by the end of today's show, so don't go away. Grabner continues. He says, a modern army of fewer than 10,000 men could sweep all Palestine. Remember this. Remember this, too. Grabner's writing before the creation of the modern nation state of Israel. He hasn't even seen what you and I have seen since World War II. And he's already saying that an an army of 10,000 people could sweep all of Palestine from end to end if it were a land of unwalled villages. (laughs) Grabner's great here to emphasize the ridiculousness of the millennialist view. He says, and Kilias, that'd be the millennialists, expect us to believe that this land of undefended villages will be attacked by an army of tens of millions of fighters gathered from every part of the world, according to Revelation 28, if you read that in a literal sense, armed with bows and arrows. <laughs> it's fantasy. It's fiction. It's New York Times bestseller stuff, guys. Yeah, it's left behind. Of course, that's why that appealed to that audience. So again, the literalists are caught up thinking like the Jews of old, which explains why they've adapted Kiliasm to a so-called Christian schema. They're thinking like the thick-headed Jews of Jesus' day who were looking for an earthly Messiah, an earthly king, an earthly prince, to drive out the occupying Romans and restore Israel to its greatness. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Even after his resurrection, Acts 1.6, yeah? And what was it that Jesus said to Pontius Pilate before his crucifixion? Yeah, my kingdom is not of this earth. <laughs> That's, they've always, they always missed it. We were thinking with our, or seeing with our physical eyes, thinking in a natural way. And the Lord is constantly telling his followers to be thinking with spiritual eyes and be seeing with spiritual ears. God's Israel, friend, since the time of Christ, has expanded beyond a literal geographic plot of land. It went from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8. That's the reality. We don't got to get all hyped up over this war with Israel and Hamas for any other reason than it's, it's just a grieving war that we're seeing and horrible atrocities are happening. All that stuff is, that's the reason we should be concerned about it. And because all wars point us to the promise of our Lord's return as birth pangs of the days that are imminent ahead, the Lord's returning soon. Reverend Gravener, riding in the midst of crazy millennialist hysteria during World War I and II, taught rightly that we hold that the campaign of Gog and Magog must be understood in a figurative, spiritual sense, like most Old Testament prophecies. And he says to to look at Ezekiel 38, 17. Look at this. Thus says the Lord God, Are you he of whom I spoke in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who in those days prophesied for years that I would bring you against them? When we read the words of, say, Joel, about 3, 9, Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up. Or perhaps Jeremiah 30, 20, their children shall be as they were of old and their congregation shall be established before me and I will punish all who oppress them. Or or Micah 4, 11, now many nations are assembled against you saying, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. All these verses, all throughout the Old Testament, we can go to many, many places, anywhere you want to go. You're going to see this. There is a clear reference to the same struggle described by Ezekiel in Ezekiel 38 
against the stupendous, Grabner says, imagery of Gog and Magog, especially from Revelation 20, it becomes clear that Gog and Magog are not a certain tribe or nation, but they stand for the hosts of evil led by Satan, which assail the New Testament Israel from every side. In Ezekiel's day, the Scythians of the north and the east, they were a terror to the whole Oriental world. Herodotus reports an invasion of the Scythians, which spread destruction all through Western Asia, also through Palestine, somewhere around 630 B.C., that is to say, within the memory of Ezekiel's hearers. Oh, and lest we forget, Josephus, that first century Jewish historian, says that Gog is to be connected to the Scythians. He says they're the Scythians. Reverend Grabner continues, to the Jews who first read Ezekiel's prophecy, all these dreadful hordes on the outer margin of the known world represented a symbol for nameless terror, fierce and merciless onslaught, destructive, barbaric power. Such were the attacks to be to which Israel in the last days, in the gospel age, our age, was to be exposed. Undoubtedly, Israel here stands for the Christian church, as it does so frequently all throughout prophecy. And that's not all, dear saints. The good Reverend Grabner continues to show us that the spiritual reading of, of Israel is common throughout the Old Testament. He says, nor must it appear strange that the names of the then existing tribes were used in a figurative meaning for the enemies of the church. Even so, the name of Edom, the ancient enemy of Israel, is used by Isaiah in chapters 34 and 63 as a symbol of the enemy of the world against the church. In the same sense, the prophet Joel employs the names of Edom and Egypt. As Judah, Israel, Jacob are used as symbols of the Christian church, so Edom and Egypt as symbols of the unbelieving mass of humanity. Why then should the fierce Scythian hordes in the gloomy and untraveled north and the savages of the southland not stand for the forces arrayed in the world against the church of God? just makes so much sense. Grabner, oh, guys, he's just so amazing, so logically consistent. I just can't help myself. We're going to keep going. He says again in Daniel eleven forty one, Edom, Moab, and Ammon related with Israel by descent and the old hereditary and chief enemies of this people have become by name representatives of all the hereditary and chief enemies of the people of God. And he's citing kill there. It's very clear that what Daniel foretells in this chapter belongs to a far distant era. However, the nation Moab no longer existed after the time of the Babylonian exile in the 6th century before Christ. Yet the Moabites appear in this prophecy as future enemies of the Christian church. Symbolism here cannot be assailed. But if Moab, Edom, and Ammon are used as symbols for the world's hatred against the Christian church, then why not Gog and Magog? As for land of Israel, the entire earth, so far as it's inhabited by Christians, has become a holy land, a Canaan. <laughs> Preach it, brother. To Abraham was given the promise that he should be heir of the world, Romans 4, 9 to 13. And this is fulfilled in the spread of Christianity to all countries. Wherever the church is, there is the spiritual Canaan. The campaign of Gog and Magog then, it's the onset of hostile powers under the leadership of Satan against the Christian church 
in the latter years, in the age of the gospel, our age. Gog is omnis turba emporium et hostium ecclesia. Sounds fancy. That is to say, any and every host of wicked enemies assailing the church. Whatever's in league today against the Christian church, anti-Christian scientific speculation, higher criticism, modernism, evolutionism, Mormonism, Christian scientism, he says, materialism, sensualism, secretism, birth control, all the forces of sin and carnality which seek to corrupt the church and to slay her inner life are the Gog and Magog of Ezekiel and John. And yes, Yes, don't stop there. You're right to think that, my friend. How about Marxism? Uh-huh. Wokeism? Yes, sir. LGBTQism? For sure. Critical racism? Uh-huh. And the same goes for feminism with its family-destroying female pastor-inspiring teachings. All of it. It's all Gog and Magog. And that's where we have to leave it today. We are out of time already. The hour goes by so fast. Is the Israel-Hamas war going to escalate into World War III? Well, who knows? I don't know. Ask somebody who has a little more insight into geopolitical conflict. But is Russia Gog? Not a chance. If Russia invades Israel, you can bet the millennialists will get all hot and bothered again, but it will still mean nothing to the eschatological prophecies in Ezekiel and Revelation because they refer to the church. As for hazy days encouraging me to kill myself, well, I have a couple things to say. First, well, that would go against God's fifth commandment. So even if it was true that no one cares about me, I don't have the freedom to murder anyone, not even myself. And two, well, (laughs) thanks for commenting on my video. Comments tell YouTube to show the video to more people. So you've been Genesis 50-20'd, my friend. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God, he meant it for good. Bring it about. Many people should be kept alive as they are today. Thanks for tuning in to Cross Defense, my friends. Have a wonderful week. We'll talk to you next week. Godspeed and God's blessings. You and yours. Cross Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org.